I was so disappointed in our chairman of George Jesus staff that talked about, was defending critical race theory in the teaching. Because if he really did read Karl Marx, which I frankly don't believe, if he read Mayo, he'd understand these things. That these are not some kind of brain surgeon stuff. They used to use chunk of Gnosticism or some kind of secret knowledge. There really isn't. The idea is just to break things down. Break them down, criticize, criticize, criticize. Wayfoot Today is a program where we explore all things Second Amendment, all things that protect, threaten, and violate the Second Amendment rights of all Americans. My name is Zoe Warren, and I'm the host of Two Way for Today. Today, we have an interview with Colonel Bill Connor. Colonel Connor is a Christian, a devoted family man, and he's been married to his lovely wife, Susan, for over 30 years. And they have three children. He and his family live in Orangeburg, South Carolina, where he is the owner and lawyer of Bill Connor Law Firm, LLC. Colonel Connor was also the former chairman of the Republican Party for the 6th Congressional District. The Colonel joined the Army in 1990 and served over a decade as a regular Army infantry officer in the U.S. Army. After leaving active duty to become a reservist, he earned his Juris Doctorate from the University of South Carolina. In 2007, Colonel Connor volunteered for a year-long combat deployment in Afghanistan serving as a joint operations officer, developing and implementing the U.S. advisory effort for Afghan National Security Forces. He later commanded the U.S. advisory effort in the volatile Helmand province and subsequently earned a promotion to lieutenant colonel. He also served as the senior American military liaison to British forces in Helmand, Afghanistan, where he served with Prince Harry. For his efforts in Afghanistan, he was awarded the Bronze Star and was put in charge of command and general staff officer instruction in South Carolina for the reserves. Uh, he is also he was also promoted in 2015 to the South Carolina Emergency Preparedness Liaison Officer under U.S. Army North. He's a distinguished graduate from the U.S. Army War College, class of 2018, with an MSS degree, and a graduate of the Citadel, the Military College of South Carolina. He was appointed to the South Carolina Floodwater Commission uh, by Governor Henry McMaster and elected chairman of the National Security Task Force in January 2019. Governor McMaster also presented Colonel Connor the Order of the Palmetto, South Carolina's highest award on July 8, 2021. Uh, welcome to the show today, sir. How are you? Great. Thanks. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for joining us, joining the program today. Uh, you have a great deal of experience in the military, traveling all over the world, seeing different cultures. And I, I, I have been able to experience your presentation on Marxism and socialism, the things you've discerned. You have a, a long history of writing. You have, you're a, a, a journalist and an investigative reporter as well with the Times and Democrat down in Orangeburg. Kind of give me a little bit of, uh, of background on your journalism and your, you know, this, this kind of um, looking in and digging deep into Marxism, uh, this path that you've gotten on here in the last sure. year or so. Thanks so much. Uh, thanks for having me um, on your show. It really means a lot. And um yeah, I uh, left the regular army back in 2002, um, and not too long after us, uh, we moved to Orangeburg, South Carolina, which is sort of deep in the heart of the uh, the Democratic part of the state. And so, uh, our local paper, paper of record in this area, is the Times of Democrat. Imagine that. And uh, reading the articles, I just kind of chafed under it. So, really, starting almost within a year of getting there, uh, almost 20 years ago, 
but as far as the issue of Marxism, I'd written various things that led toward the issue of Marxism and how far it got. But really, it's the last year or two. Um, in fact, a man that really got beyond this was Pastor Vadi Bakum. And hopefully people can remember him. I mean, incredible uh, preacher. Uh, I don't know if you know him, but he's uh, got his PhD from Oxford and uh, is in Zambia now as a missionary and also runs a university there. I mentioned that because when I started listening to Vadi Bakum, just an incredible story. And of course, background story, grew up in L.A., um, African-American son of a single mother, Buddhist uh, at the time. And apparently they had an uncle who'd been a drill instructor at Paris Island, got his life going. I mentioned all that because he really dug into critical race theory. And I started listening to him. And then I started really digging in a year or two ago. And that's where I started taking the, his the knowledge I had in history of various different ideas, ideology, and writing everything I could. And you've already talked about Times and Democrat. I started writing to the Christian Post, uh, the Charleston Mercury, uh, and other papers, and including during the summer where it wasn't that popular at the time. I think a lot of folks are very surprised about just what's seen in the explosion of protests, which turned into riots, and what's going on. And, and listening to, to Body Bach, I'm studying the issue, always loving history. I was a history major in school. You know, it's a lot of what I did in the war college, love reading history, start tying everything together um, ideologically and then just historically of what built into what we're seeing today. Yeah, that's, that's really, really good. I, you know, it's, it's interesting to me too, because a lot of people have different speculations. And the speculation is that, you know, there's a trend among uh, collectivist societies in any place where tyranny really is. And that is that they disarm the population. And what they're doing is they're going back and, and trying to uh, rewrite, I guess, history as, as far as the Second Amendment is concerned and the founders are concerned. Can you speak to, to any of that? I've been hearing a lot of that kind of stuff. And, and sure. I, I, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, the other thing is being a lawyer, um, I spent a lot of my time digging in the Constitution. Um, what's interesting is in law school, the required Constitution course really leaves out a lot. What all lawyers, all lawyers get the same course. They start with Marbury's and Madison and they learn about case law leading up to where we are now without ever digging into the Federalist Papers. You know, where do the ideas come from the Constitution? What would the, what did things mean? That's not part of what lawyers and judges get. So I'll tell you that right now. It's something very important because it delves right into the issue you talked about and sort of the, the, the two worldviews I mentioned when I spoke to your group. You know, going back to just before the French Revolution, you had a guy named Jean-Jacques Rousseau and some of his ideas about man being a blank slate. And this whole idea of men in a materialist sense, of which eventually with Charles Darwin, the idea is we really are just material. We're solely affected by our society. Um, you have one view, and therefore, if you can have elites that collectively form society, they can form men into that image. Um, that is a, a view that went back even before Marx. For our founders, they're revolutionaries, but they're revolutionaries toward the traditional Christian view, Judeo-Christian view mm -hmm. of the sin nature of man, that we all, we're all born to sin, we come toward Christ, uh, we accept his forgiveness, but even though the forgiveness, we still have to keep repenting of sin, and we have a sin nature. And therefore, throughout history, what it's shown us is that sin nature can't handle power. Um, you know, Lord Acton, who was uh, British at the time, made a great saying, which is power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. 
And the founders understood that because of their Christian worldview, their Christian understanding of man, but also the idea that man has a spark that's different from all other species, animals, that we, we are made in the image of God. And it's so important because that was what the Declaration told the world. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. That didn't mean we weren't, we're all the same physically as far as short, tall. What, what it meant was, is that we are made in the image of God equally. We have the same equal legal worth. Um, and I will tell you that throughout history, Woodrow Wilson, you go back even farther than that, progressives don't believe that. They believe that rights and everything else, because of course it goes on, on from uh, being created equal, we are endowed by our creator. We told the world we believe in God collectively, and that we are endowed directly from God with certain inalienable rights, that among those are life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Now, I'm going to stop with that very quickly, too, because that was almost a direct lift from John Locke, who was a British political theorist that Jefferson was using. And he used the three as being life, liberty, and property. Mm-hmm. When they used pursuit of happiness, that really was still putting property, but it's the idea that if you have liberty and property, you can pursue your own happiness. You can start your own business. You can do live the life you want to live. Yeah. Pursuit of happiness was tied directly into property. So I want to mention that, that bit. But it's interesting at that time, this ties to the Second Amendment, is that, you know, first we fought the revolution. We we're in the Articles of Confederation. Basically, each one of the colonies and states was really a separate nation. Um, and then we run into all the problems after the revolution of different money, different treaties with other sides, really no way to, to keep things together. So we had the Constitutional Convention. After the Constitutional Convention, you had arguments about why the other side, those who were opposed to the Constitution, should accept a federal government which had with the, the Supremacy Clause. Uh-huh. And it ties right into the Second Amendment because this all ties into our worldview man is man is a sin nature, really can't be trusted with power. The Constitution breaks power among the federal government. So you got the three branches, even within the first branch, you got the, the House and the Senate, all these checks. And then the second check, which is the dual sovereignty. The states have general police powers and sovereignty. The federal government has enumerated power sovereignty. And it was it was really a first of its kind, that kind of federated system. But the idea was, again, to keep, they'd seen what the abuses in Europe, they'd, they'd, they'd left the, uh, the, the tyranny of all these, um, the monarchs, um, where they had state churches, which controlled everything. We didn't want that, but they also had monarchs that, that trampled on their rights. So when they were trying to sell the idea of a federal government to the states, this is a quote from James Madison, where the issue came up of, wait a second, if you guys, if the, the federal government under the supremacy clause gets to decide the disputes and issues, that puts them in such a superior power that they could abuse that power. Mm-hmm. They could trample our rights in the states. And, and Madison and, and uh, Hamilton, who were trying to defend the Constitution, said this about why they, they wouldn't have to worry about it. And this goes into, again, the idea of man, the, the separation of powers, the fact that we believe all, all men are created equal, we all have equal rights, um, but that also that man is, is a sin nature. So what James Madison wrote, and this is in Federalist 46, is let a regular army fully equal to the resources of the country be entirely at the devotion of the federal government. Still, it would not be going too far to say the state governments with the people on their side would be able to repel the danger. To a federal federal army would be opposed by a militia amounting to nearly half a million citizens with arms in their hands. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is something you don't hear much about, but 
when the discussion is made, because this ties right into the Second Amendment. This goes right into all the discussions about why they added the militia clause, which militia, of course, meant every able-bodied man not only had a right but a duty to defend himself, his family. This cuts out the issue of hunting. It's Yes, we hunt. But at the same time, though, this is all about man's sin nature, man's equal worth, what we believe, as opposed to, I'm going to talk about the collectivists in a little bit. It says, besides the advantage of being armed, which the Americans possess over peoples of all other nations at that time. So at that time, you already had, people think gun control was just something that started under Stalin or Hitler, and they did, and, and tyrants need that. But it was already in place, as he says, throughout nations of the world. In that case, they're talking about Western nations with kings controlling the people. But it says the existence of subordinate governments to which the people are attached and by which militia officers are appointed forms a barrier against the enterprises of ambition more insurmountable than any which a simple government of any form can admit. Notwithstanding the military establishments of several kingdoms of Europe, which are uh, carried as far as the public resources will bear, the governments are afraid to trust the people with arms in those countries. Mm -hmm. And the, for the real reason of this, which is this is the ultimate check on power. Mm -hmm. It is not certain that uh, with this aid alone, they would not be able to shake off their yokes. So the whole point there for Madison, it goes on, by the way, in various different discussions about this, is you don't have to worry about the Constitution giving too much power to the federal government because, first of all, the primary loyalties are to the states. But second of all, everyone's armed. And so really that is the check, that is the ultimate check that allowed people to sign on to the Constitution. And I say that because around that same time frame, you had another development which lead, led into Marxism. Because if you interestingly talk to communists, they will take their stuff back to the French Revolution. Mm -hmm. And the French Revolution sort of founded more on Jean-Jacques Rousseau and the idea of sort of men being a blank slate and materialism being what they, their environment made them, as opposed to spark of God, made the image of God. They're evolving. Mm -hmm. We can collectivize people. We can form them into new man. We can control the, the development of man. Those ideas came, and one of the first things they did was attack against religion, mm -hmm. attack against Christianity. The French Revolution, for those that know, attacked the church, not just killing priests and ministers and all that, but trying to burn down bells and, and trying to go to a 10-day week, get rid of the it, it didn't work very well, but they attempted it. <laughs> they turned the churches into centers of reason. I thought that was exactly. pretty... <laughs> yes, exactly. In Notre Dame, they brought the Lady of Reason. I mean, they, they, again, they, they burned the church bells down to make other, other things. They really, they, they saw the church, they saw the idea of God as being a hindrance to the humanism of their collective ideas. And their revolution failed beyond misery. So what you see, and you're seeing that now in some ways is, is Robespierre... And the crazies, quite frankly, that we saw, we initially cheered out a little bit, like Jefferson, but then even he backed off saying, whoa, this is not where we want to go. And they went to Napoleon, a tyrant, um, all the way up to finally restoring the monarchy. And then, you know, France eventually moved on in much more Republican government. But the French Revolution was just a bloodbath that turned on itself. Yeah. What was interesting, by the way, too, is all the initial crazies, the radicals, got their heads cut off, too, including Robespierre. Yeah. But Marx looked back on that, too, by the way, because those ideas percolated. And what Marx saw is the same idea of human nature, of there is no God, and religion is an opium of the people. And he wrote horrendous things, by the way, about Christianity, about religion. Um, but he believed that really man is evolving. Um, and this helps, you know, kind of lead toward where Darwinism took us. He's a materialist. He's an economic materialist. He believed that economic systems really formed who and what we were. And so what he believed was 
quite frankly, than this, is that um, if you can take away religion, cause the people to collapse, that eventually you can form them into this new society, it's a utopia, um, but you've got to destroy everything first. So one of the first things of Marxism is, is agitation, division, division, division. It's all about collapsing systems. When they asked Marx one time what his, his primary purpose in life was, he said two things. The first thing was to throne God. You can go back to all the quotes to him. To throne God was the first thing he had to do. And the second thing was destroy capitalism. Yeah. They went together. But it wasn't just that, by the way. He saw things like the family, the father-led family, patriarchal family. The term patriarchy was used throughout the Communist Manifesto. You look at Das Kapital, all about get rid of the family because they believe that helped lead toward these historic ideas coming to the people. Mm-hmm. Destroy history. Because what they what he believed too was is that if you can control the past, you control the future. Yeah. And so when you see things like the Russian Revolution that killed the whole Tsar's family, family, extended family, everybody, renamed the cities, destroyed monuments, things we're seeing now. But Marx taught this stuff in leading toward this communist utopia where they could first collectivize and it would be worldwide, there wouldn't be governments or anything else, and then eventually everyone shares everything and there's no private property. no. Yeah. So that was the sort of things he wrote about. But when you look at Marx, and this goes through all the main characters of the Marxist, Marxism, communism, he was a despicable human being. I mean, he really, his, when his, his family, he sponged off him. He almost never worked. And when he did, it was sort of, he wrote, by the way, the New York Tribune, which became the New York Times, wrote all kinds of articles in the UK, from Europe, for what became the New York Times, our wonderful paper uh, now, that was Karl Marx, but Mainly, he just sponged off people. Mm. Two of his uh, children committed suicide. Two of his daughters committed suicide. His son was actually of Cuban ancestry, so he used racial epithets toward him, treated mm. him so bad, he committed suicide, too. Um, he had an affair with his maid, child out of wedlock with that, and tried to get Friedrich Engels, the guy who was given all the money, to take the blame for that. Um, I go through story after story about, again, his family, how he treated them. So he wrote about the greed and the corruption of capitalism but it was all about himself. He came from a rich family. He used up his trust fund early. He sponged off relatives. So he was the epitome of what you see within all the, the main characters in Marxism and communism of hip, being hypocrites. But their ideas was that they could develop, again, an elite. They could destroy what we have in society now. They believe is causing all the problems, set up a new society, and man would change. He would evolve into this new sort of dynamic. Um, the only way to get there is destroy God, destroy Christianity, destroy the church, destroy uh, families, take away fathers out of households. So you got children being raised by the state and eventually, again, form this new man. So anyway, his ideas percolated um, until eventually you see the Russian Revolution um, in 1917. And there's a number of things I, I've glossed over with that. But one of the things about that revolution was Marx taught that it was scientifically inevitable that communism would overtake capitalism, that there was just, and as soon as one major country went, it would immediately take over the world. The world would become communist. After the Russian Revolution, it didn't go anywhere. It was stopped. And they had these groups throughout different European countries that were just shocked into, wait, Marx told us that as soon as people were class conscious, a major country comes, it's going to all go to communism. What's going on here? And that's where you started to some of the issues that we're going to come forward to today is this idea of we need to do something different in countries that aren't automatically having the proletariat, the worker revolution. Um, in Italy, you had a guy, a very important man even now, uh, named uh, Antonio Gramsci. 
And what he taught was, and eventually became part of the Frankfurt School thinking as well, all the way into Harvard and eventually to us was, in order to get a proletarian revolution in a place with firm structures, church, family, all that, you first got to break it down. And what he talked about was flipping the cultural hegemony. And so the idea is criticism. You criticize, criticize. You lampoon. You do all you can to hit the church, hit the family, hit patriarchy, um, destroy sexual morality, all the things you can do. And the idea is to implode society. And, and part of the idea is, again, develop the, the oppressor and the oppressed, which before it's strictly been the bourgeois and the work of the proletariat. This now became, wait a second, there are other oppressed and oppressors. We need to get all of them agitated, implode society, get all that going, to because once it implodes, then you'll have the proletariat revolution or the communist revolution. Now, those he was he was actually arrested, died in prison in 1937. Mm. But his writings, the, the prison notes, the prison writings, went to what they call the Frankfurt School in Germany. And this is very important to lead to America. Mm. They were a group in the 1920s that wanted Germany to become communist. And they were shocked at like their lack of progress. So the 20s, they were more standard Marxian, proletarian, bourgeoisie. But then at the end of the 20s, they, they got hold of uh, Antonio Gromsky's writings, and they started moving toward what we would consider cultural Marxism. And then by the late 30s, they were even talking about critical theory. And that's where the term was first used in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. The Frankfurt School group of academic communists, basically, were forced out of Germany by the Nazis in the 1930s. So they came to primarily Columbia University, but really went to various Ivy Leagues. One of the members was a guy named Herbert Marcuse. And if you really study the left to this day, he's called the father of the new left. And he wrote this, this book in the uh, early 19, uh, actually 1965, uh, called Repressive Tolerance, where what he argued was, is it's the Gromskian thinking about flipping the cultural hegemony, is true tolerance is suppressing speech from the right, suppressing actions from the right, so pushing the right down because they're the oppressors. Equity. And it means pushing up the other side. And he'd written a book already about, called Eros about how sexual morality needs to end. But again, same idea, flipping the cultural hegemony, destroying patriarchy, the family, uh-huh. um, all these kind of things. In fact, you know, for Black Lives Matter, if you look down their list of things they want, they kind of moved off now. But, you know, disrupting the nuclear family was definitely a, a thing that you'd look at within Herbert Marcuse. But his writings, and he continued writing, by the way, he is considered the father in many ways of American critical theory which became critical legal theory in the 70s and the 80s. And then a guy at Harvard, too, named Derek Bell um, sort of developed the first ideas of critical race theory. And all it was was the same, you know, now we have 50 different critical theories. There's critical, critical Latino theory. There's even critical witch theory. I mean, there's cr- a crazy number of theories, but they're all about criticism. So the idea is you attack the church, you attack the family, you attack institutions, you collapse society, and then out of the out of the smoldering dust of this, they believe that a, a proletarian revolution is going to come eventually to go to the Marxian, you know, theories. And Marcuse, you know, did criticize Stalinism a bit, though, you know, unfortunately not nearly enough, uh, because of what he considered the excesses. And so what started to come about in the 60s was this idea that, well, we've got guys like Stalin and others, uh, Mao Zedong, and they're pushing things, but they're not true Marxists. I mean, you know, Marxism can work, and we need to find the American context of it. And part of that was looking at, at oppressor and oppressed differently. And that's where you get a lot of the, you know, the uh, the, the sexual sort of oppressor oppressed or the gender oppressor oppressed. 
the uh, the racial, so racial. Yeah, critical race theory. So all that comes together into the idea of the two worldviews. And our worldview on the right has been, um, you know, we've been very naive to it. I was naive to, to what was going on. We just kind of thought, well, these are academics doing their academic thing in the ivory towers. It doesn't affect us. Well, I think after last year and seeing the riots and the explosion and what people are are doing with it, really, quite frankly, hatred of not just America itself or corruption symbols, but as America itself. Because one of the things that the uh, the Frankfurt School taught, Marcuse taught, was there is systematic oppression, whether it be racism or, or other types of isms, and it's systematic. Yeah. And so within critical race theory, the idea is that it may look fair. You know, it may be that such that the laws are all fair. There may be affirmative action, maybe whatever. But regardless, that doesn't matter. What matters is, is that um, subjective opinions of those who are the oppressed counter any kind of reason, logic, anything else of those who are considered the oppressor class. Intersectionality comes up, by the way, where you've got, you know, someone who could be female, um, you know, uh, black, um, you know, lesbian, various different things come together at once into the idea of intersectionality of oppressed status. A spectrum. So, Spectrum of exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, but it's all about the again the agitation, agitation, make things about race. Um, but the real terrible thing about it is, is that it starts with the base that the system is corrupted. So, no matter what we've done with the Civil Rights Act, with Martin Luther King Jr., his dream of his children not being judged by their color skin, by the, the content of their character, all that goes out the door. They believe saying the word colorblind is a racist idea because the Marcusean thing of true tolerance is crushing the right and pushing up the left. Yeah. So all these things kind of came together. I know for me, I've done a lot of writings. Uh, when I started law school 20 years ago, I had read about critical legal theory, but didn't have much time for it. And it basically kind of said that even though things look fair, you know, that actually it's, it's an oppressive system because you go back to such and such. And the other part is history now, because if you look at the founders, they absolutely did not revolt against the uh, Great Britain to, to protect slavery, quite the opposite. In fact, that's one of the issues was it's a continued slave trade. Really, when the, the first group of, you want to call it nations, if you will, to end slavery were the Northeast of the United States that already said in the Constitution, you know, we said that by 1808, we'd stop the slave trade. We said that, and it was actually, Great Britain eventually went to 1807. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the slave trade, for example, is one of the things, in the northern states, they outlawed it before anybody else outlawed it. Before they so even gave themselves a bill of rights in Pennsylvania, they had banned slavery. What you're seeing, too, within like the 1619 project, which is just fraudulent history, it really is. I mean, it's one thing to teach the true history of slavery. It's an evil. It should never be done again. We got it. Um, now, it was unfortunately a human condition thing going back 3,000, I mean, since the Millennials. beginning of slavery. So, you know. It's, um, there's a lot to teach about that. No problem with teaching that. So that's really not the issue. What critical race theory does is it really warps motivations. So, for example, you take the start down in the United States. It was anything but to protect slavery, as we know. And, in fact, the whole thing with the uh, all men are created equal, I've seen criticisms from uh, Democratic Congress people saying that only meant white slaveholding, whatever. And that was not what it meant. And John Locke was clear it was the species which actually would have even meant women at the time. But the idea is all are created equal. We're all endowed by God. Um, and so the founders knew that was going to eventually end slavery. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, too, that you were saying earlier about agitation, division, division, division. And 
their whole aim is to get the populace to revolt, especially now, against, I guess, white people, white people, white, the white supremacy, um, anything that has to do with the founders. And what they're doing now is it's even the Biden administration. I mean, even before the Biden administration, we're talking about even George Bush establishing certain domestic terrorist Patriot Act kind of language that would create a class that would be prosecuted, especially in America called like domestic terrorists. And then they would have this, you know, list of exactly. characteristics that a domestic terrorist would have to have in order to qualify. And what's funny is that Democrats in 2020 justified every single line of the uh, domestic terrorist statute <laughs> that was being done yeah. by Antifa and Black Lives Matter. They justified it over and over. I have a video where yeah. over and over they're like, you know, it's not going to stop. You know, they need right. to keep protesting. They need to keep putting pressure on the government. All Everything that's in the line uh, right. for domestic terrorism, they justified it. But they're trying to just only put white right wing because they want to get rid of the right. You were saying, Marcuse was saying, we have to get rid of the right, right? And that's, that's how you do anti-racism. That's how you do uh, equity. That's how you do justice. It's not equality. It's actually putting this other group down so you can raise this other group up. Um, they're actually using that right now. I mean, we got right. these, these guys you would consider, uh, they call them insurrectionists, the protesters in January 6th. I mean, yeah. essentially, their, their habeas corpus has been suspended for them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, like... And, and using these tools, uh, and so yeah, can, no, can, can you speak? I mean, I, I don't want to go too far off the Second Amendment, but truly, yeah. this is the only way they're going to be able to. It seems to me, overthrow the right is by being able to call them domestic terrorists and have them have been disarmed. And so they're pushing, yeah. the, pushing people that are on the right that. Yeah. Because I, I even just saw something in a, an article that said that they're, they're not able to fully stop white supremacy or domestic terrorism unless they take away guns. Guns is the thing that's preventing them from stopping domestic terrorism. Right. So can you, can you speak to any of that? Or did I go yeah. too much? Okay, great. Yeah, no, no, I, I, no I'd like to. Um, now, I want to tie back to something I didn't talk about because it ties into the subject is the cultural revolution in China. And you'll, you'll understand why I'm going to do this in a second. Um, what you're seeing a lot of from the left right now is that you guys believe in the First Amendment, and your First Amendment is not being harmed by those uh, in the government. You know, if you believe in sort of freedoms and news agencies and all that, and their freedoms to do things. And because uh, we're seeing a lot of attacks on, by the way, is through corporations, through big tech, through the media, which technically would be conceived of as being sort of private entities. Though, of course, we know there's a lot of coordination with the uh, Democrats. Yeah. The Cultural Revolution is interesting. It started in 1966. Um, China had just gone through what they call the Great Leap Forward. Millions and millions of Chinese died, so it was very unpopular for Mayo Zedong, uh, Chairman Mayo. And allegedly, the students in Peking and students throughout the country became Patriot Guards, and that was the impetus with this whole thing of destroying the past, humiliating anyone who wasn't, who wasn't thinking correctly. And the way it was helped by... Mayo was, as he gave an orders to the police, stand down, don't do a thing, let them go. They killed millions and millions of people. They destroyed all this history in China. 
if you wouldn't didn't raise your fist and sort of say the right things, and, and you, there was this thing called the Little Red Book, that you better have a Little Red Book on you because it wasn't enough just to be neutral. You had to be kind of you know anti the four roles, sort of like we see a lot of times a black Black Lives Matter with anti. You need to you know raise your fist. You do, so anyway, they used all that in a private context that was condoned by the government and it destroyed a lot of the rights. And it also ties into the, the, the gun ownership thing is that at that time, he had already gone through, the people in China were disarmed. So it completely allowed this to run muck. And you had the Patriot Guard. It finally ended you know, in the early 70s. But by then, it really, again, killed millions and millions of people and destroyed lives and all that. A lot of similarities to what we're seeing now. Um, with the coordination of the big media, uh, the big tech. We saw it during the uh, campaign, for example, in shutting down Hunter Biden's laptop story, which is a true story, as we all know, but it helped win an election and all that. Well, it ties in the gun ownership thing, too, because it is one that you're seeing just this, this coordination within the media, the, the, you know, the, the constant hammering of, like right now, we're seeing the, the, the incredible violence in New York and Chicago, wherever, is the blaming. The blaming, of course, in this case, is not about all the fact they defund the police and all the, the craziness they said they, they put in motion, but it's about the guns. And so that is the argument. And again, it comes back into this idea that on our side, we believe in this sinful and you check some power, but we also need all men are created equal as far as legal equality amongst each other. There is no elite. So who's one man to tell another, you can't have a gun or you can't have so many guns, so on and so forth. Yeah. They're trying to break all that down. And so the idea, and it really comes, ties in as well to COVID, where, um, you know, instead of allowing people decision-making and all this, there's come more of a collective a- attitude. Um, we're just going to force things um, through from the top on down through elites and everything else. And I'm one, by the way, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I just believe that we should all be able to make the decision based on what we study and what we know, we understand, because, you know, finding truth is, is a process. But it definitely is, as we showed, going all the way back to the founding of the country, the arms are really the only thing keeping us at this point from completely going under. If we didn't have arms, and didn't have that, at least that threat. You know, it's kind of like what you're saying in the military. I spent 30 years, and I was in combat different times, but the majority of my 30 years was not in combat. But I was still doing my duty because I was a deterrent. I recall like, deploying off to Kuwait when Saddam sent seven news to the border in 94, and he chickened out. He turned around and went back, and they were, he would have gone if we hadn't flown in and shown that force and shown the ability to do what we're going to do, that's all deterrence. A major deterrence right now is that we are armed, and we need to stay armed, quite frankly. Um, you know, it's interesting, you read some of the, uh, the, the post-Cold War accounts of Soviet officers and even the Japanese during World War II talking about the idea of invading America, and it was a nightmare. Just the plan on it was like, there's no way, because you got literally, I think, you know, there's the Japanese uh, admiral, you know, you're going to find some behind every blade of grass, you got a gun, you got a person there, you to defend themselves. And so these are all things that tie into the individual rights, this whole idea that our rights come from God, we're made in the image of God, we're all equal, and no one can take our rights, versus the collective attitude that if we can just get some elites in, then we can help form the society, which will change people, will evolve into a new communist man, a utopia, that we're all love and everything else. And when it comes to racism, by the way, ties in this bit too, is we believe racism is a sin. You would read the... Uh, um, the great parable of the um, um, of the Good Samaritan, and that tells us that we are to be racist, not to matter at all. It's a great sin. At the same time, sin is going to be with us till Christ comes back. So we can do what we can to to 
educate people, do what they can. We also understand that on all sides, there will be sin and there will be racism. The other side believes that we can eradicate, that we can, again, form the like perfect man and perfect utopia. And so we see a lot of their actions too. And that, again, it all comes from taking the guns, taking away rights and everything else to lead us towards that, that utopia. Yeah, the, I mean, because in any society, you're going to have multiple pools, communities, cultures. And if you're going to force people who don't want to have a collectivist society to do it, you're going to have to beat some of them over the head. <laughs> and you're not going to be able to beat somebody over the head if they're carrying, I mean, even, um, you know, uh, a musket. <laughs> At least they're going to get right. one, one yeah. shot off. Yeah. <laughs> I want to give you an example of how this, the, the, the corrosiveness of what we're seeing when I was commissioned, it was 1990, um, and I spent four years a cadet. The highest-ranking officer in the military was Colin Powell. Um, it was not a big deal. I'd grown up in the military. I was a military brat. And honestly, race was literally almost a non-existent, even a thought process. In fact, for us, we were wondering, why is the media making a deal about this? Because it's just not a deal. Well, you know, Literally, it was th that was the thought process. Um, there may have been some kind of supremacist work. I mean, but really, I never saw it. Um, it would have been taken care of. And that was 31 years ago. Yeah. And then you come to where we are now with what you're teaching people. And if you tell them that it's all out there, that the military has got all these issues and whatever, what's it going to do? You know, it's kind of like telling you with your spouse that, you know, she's probably cheating on you, you know, whatever it may be. But you're just, you're adding things in that are absolutely. So now we've got a situation where, you know, we're, we're growing just deep distrust, deep divisions that um, that we had moved past, we had come past. And it's interesting, by the way, I saw this chart, and it talked about America's views of race relations. And this is going back to 2007. It was somewhere around 70% of Americans were positive about race relations. Within, as I recall correctly, I'm going by, you know, memory here, on, uh, it was like six, seven years later, it was down to 40%. So it's like you're moving forward, our society's moving forward, we're coming together, and then, but then, you know, what's happened since that time with, you know, Ferguson and all these various different things, these various groups that are sort of been influenced by Marcuse, the Gromskian thinking. By the way, uh, the guy who translated Gromsky and commentaries for America was Pete Buttigieg's father in the 1970s, a little, little yeah. tidbit. Yeah. Uh, they call them red diaper babies, but he's one of them. So you've got that infiltration that came in our schools that, well, things may look good, and, and Colin Powell may be the chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff, and all this, but actually, you know, the system is all rigged against you. You can't succeed unless you destroy the system. The whole system is white supremacy. It was designed in order to give advantage to the children of the white supremacist. And so therefore things like right. competition and meritocracy, uh, math, uh, <laughs> those things are all white supremacy. <laughs> it's really ridiculous. But, but, you know, I think those truly, oh, yeah. If we can get to the place where we can really bring the Second Amendment back up to, I, I think, the honor that it's due. I, and I don't think the Second Amendment gives us any rights. I believe God gave us our rights, and the Second Amendment just recognizes those oh, yeah, rights yeah. and protects it. And I think right. the, one, the one part of that Second Amendment that's, that's not really, I don't think, communicated that well is it's not necessarily about my right to be like Charles Bronson or... Clint Eastwood and carry my 357 Magnum and be yeah. able to make my day. It was actually uh, my duty by God. He, the Bible says the second the, the second greatest command is to love your neighbor as you as yourself, right? So that would mean I'm duty bound by God 
if I see my neighbor in trouble to help them, if I would help myself, if I would right. defend myself, then I need to defend right. them. That's what the militia was about. It was about the community being secure. It was about oh, yeah. uh, us making sure that marauders and thieves, whatever, don't come in and just take advantage of our women and children and, and our and our neighbor in general. And so I, I, yeah. I, I, I've been essentially preaching the Second Amendment this way, that the, our founders wanted to protect our ability to do the second great commandment because it is, it's a violation of my conscience to have to watch my neighbor be right. beat over the head by communists, like, you know, Kyle Rittenhouse to have yeah. your, to have things destroyed that belong to yeah. the other and, and, and not be able to protect them because right. I, if it was happening to me, I would protect myself. So I'm duty bound by yeah. God to obey the second greatest command and to love my neighbor as I would myself. Right. Um, yeah. it's, it's like that, that mindset's been lost from our culture now. If we can, can you, do you want to speak to that at all? Or what are, you, what are your thoughts? No, I, I, first of all, I just agree with you completely. And I, and I do, again, I go back to the, the real thing in this is spiritual when it comes down to it, that Mark said that he wants to dethrone God. In the end, that's the first thing he said before capitalism is, this is all about the hatred of God. God says, do not love the world or things in the world. It doesn't mean it's creation. It means the world system. So the world system is going to be against us. And we see that in a lot of things that are going on. But you're exactly right. That Part of the idea, the reason I joined the military wasn't to go out and kill people. It was to defend who we are, the nation I love. And that's exactly what, you know, for me, Christ said, great, great love, no man in this, that he gives his life for his friends. I mean, to us, that's why we're serving. That's why, you know, folks gave their lives. It was not about, you know, killing hatred. Um, you know, it's interesting watching the left, too, because you got the uh, the, the group MFAC, who, um, you know, I'm all for their, their, their rights to, to bear arms, but because it's a minority group that's, you know, very passionately that, there's all kinds of praise on that sort of thing. Um, of course, someone needs to teach them about national discharges, because that, that's been a major, major issue on it. But um, we're not we're not against like their rights are fine, but don't be hypocritical and say, OK, that's great. But, but you know, other people holding weapons and, and doing it responsibly. You know, that's the piece that this does tie directly into Christianity. I also believe, by the way, yes. too, that the Bible is very clear about my duty as a man is protector and provider. Mm -hmm. I'm very disturbed about this idea of uh, the draft for women, um, because we've also that's a whole separate thing. It's moved us into you know, uh, a new sort of anti-biblical idea that we don't need it. And, um, and we are to protect women and children. Um, so. And it's, it's wholly, really, it's wholly unnecessary. I mean, right. Okay. I, I am not anti-military by any stretch of the imagination. I am concerned about anti-constitutional acts that are being done. Like I believe sometimes that we will allow politicians to violate the constitution out of necessity for the hour. Right. And so right. I think we're at that point now where like the, the, the United States, the Constitution gives Congress the right to raise money and to, to, in order to raise an army, right? Um, not necessarily maintain. Right. It does say maintain a Navy. <laughs> and I'm not, right. I'm not against yeah, every, it. Every, every two years, it, that, that was a check on power, too. You're exactly right. Every two years. So Congress could end the standing regular army within two years. <laughs> and, and so the issue still remains yeah. that we are supposed to be the militia. We're the defensive front on the home front. There, there was no, like, I mean, the National Guard doesn't even apply because the National Guard goes overseas. I mean, the, the militia was purely defensive, right. purely defensive. 
And so I'm not even I'm not even thinking about in terms of like, you know, like the Green Mountain Boys or just some random, you know, militia group that's out there in the woods right now doing FTXs as much as just we as the male populace between X age and X age. Like, like, like the, the I think the, um, the, yeah. uh, the Supreme Court has ruled on several, seven occasions that police yeah. officers have no obligation to protect anyone. That right. uh, at all unless they're in their right. custody so who's who's obligated to protect us then it's us <laughs> right oh, you yeah know? yeah i know well so I, I would tell you this that if you can you know i think the whole federalist number 26 quite frankly is one that that whole quote destroys them because they'll hear sometimes people on the right talk about the, the right to bear arms being a check on government remember what biden said about it He's like, come on, you would need nuclear bombs and F-16. Here it is, Mr. Biden, wait a second. Here's what James Madison, you know, the father of the Constitution, right. said about this. He said it. I can just quote him directly, and they're going to say you're extremist. But yeah. I, mean, I just quoted directly. Someone will grab this, this clip and say, I'm just quoting James Madison and Alexander Hamilton, who were trying to argue for a stronger federal government. And they were saying, look, the reason why we got to check on, you know, the reason you don't have to worry of states is because you've got the weapons, you've got the guns. If we attempted that, you have 500,000 people to go against a 50,000-man standing army, you'd win. That's what they're saying in the whole thing. And really, we understood that up until very recently. Yeah. I have friends that would whisper to, to, to uh, I, I would call him Resident Joe Biden, <laughs> even though he's our president. I have to honor that. I, yeah. They would whisper to him, your terms are acceptable, sir. <laughs> truly yeah. because they don't want any restrictions yeah. whatsoever why should i not be right. able to park an f-16 in my backyard <laughs> you know i'm right. just saying yeah uh, yeah well, so anyway <laughs> well then then too i mean as we we know from if you know that warfare is that we start talking about those weapons i mean yeah go ahead and use a nuclear weapon you know and uh, even f-16 it's like you know the wars are won by infantrymen on the ground so it's a tactical end you know and the way we are now with the, the country, all the urban areas blue and the, you know, the rural areas, it's just a retarded, ridiculous statement to make. Yeah, it, it, but he's he's the king of ridiculous statements to make. You know, we went from we went from the twi Twitter machine to the gaff machine. You know, oh, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I, yeah. enjoy, I enjoy looking for quotes for Joe Biden weekly for my program. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, the latest about his butt being wet was, I think, the funniest I've, I've seen in quite a lot of time. What? I didn't hear that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hilarious. Hilarious. Well, thank you so much for being on the program with us today. And it's a pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. It's an honor. Um, I, I'm, I'm so excited about where we're headed because it seems like, you know, I hate the, the term woke. So I, I would say awake. There is an awakening, yeah. an awakening to right. the spirit of truth that's happening. And, and, and I don't believe that we can save the, the, the country by changing out some law or politician. I personally believe that we right. have to, if we, we have to change out politicians, we have to change laws, but we have to have an informed electorate. Otherwise, we're going to be right back where we are today in 10 or 15 years. <laughs> so thank you so much for joining in the yeah. fight to inform the populace and, and, and help other people to enter into the truth that you have been given from God. So thank you so much, brother. Thank you, sir. That concludes our program for today. But again, in the coming weeks and months, to wait for today, we'll be talking to experts, scholars, trainers, 
and all forms of gun right activists and Second Amendment proponents to answer the many questions that we all have and unpack the various laws and trespasses of our rights that have already been enacted and those that are on the horizon. Again, if the Second Amendment's important to you, make sure to subscribe to the New American Magazine and get on the top daily headline mailing list so that you get an email alert anytime we upload a video or stream a live event. And share these videos with your family and friends who feel the same or those that are riding the fence between liberty and tyranny who need a little more convincing. You've been watching 2A for today. My name is Zoe. Post your comments or questions and we'll try to address as many as we can as fast as we can in the coming weeks and months. Thank you for watching 2A for today.